This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. When I was in the fourth grade, I broke one of my pinky fingers. The following year, I broke my right ankle, and the year after that, I sprained my left ankle. Basically, I'm a pretty clumsy guy. But Abra Millman, this week's teller, can give me a run for my money. In her story, she explores the lessons learned in seemingly insurmountable obstacles and how to use those lessons to stay strong and keep moving forward. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in December 2019, Second Story is proud to present Getting On With It. So I tend to wear my anxiety like an infinity scarf. My muscles pinch, my jaw grinds, and I braid my legs into a knot. And this is the position I take in the seat, uh, in the passenger seat, as my mother drives me, my son, and my dog to Colorado. And while I'm a tangle of limbs and nerves coiled into my seatbelt, my mother is wooden. Stiff in her seat, spine flexed, hands at 10 and 2, the radio is not on. Being rescued by your mother when you are a mother is sort of a mind fuck. <laughs> I feel 15 and 35 at the same time, which leads me to behave both 15 and 35 at the same time. I pout, I talk back, and I even smoke cigarettes in front of her. <laughs> her poker face remains starched as she waits out my tantrum. We know the drill. I've been hurt before. The summer before junior high, I was riding my bike when I registered what felt like a meteor slam into the back of my head. But in reality, a magpie, which is a large, aggressive bird, was dive-bombing the silver barrette in my hair. As I was swatting at the assault of black feathers and squawking, Todd Karras locked eyes with me. The dreamiest boy in Mr. Bailey's sixth grade class was passing by in the back seat of his mom's Jeep Wagoneer as I crashed to the asphalt. I broke my ulna and my radius and I had to have surgery. The break was so severe that my arm needed to be positioned above my heart with a kickstand cast. But because uh, my ribcage could not hold the weight of the cast, it was decided that whoever was around me would take turns holding my arm for the entire summer. (laughs) Two weeks after the surgery, my town hosted the Spring Spree Fun Run, and my dad set me up in my mom's tanning chair with a phone book, a pillow, and the free newspaper stand to secure my arm. While my friends and family made their way through the cheers, all I could see was my six-year-old neighbor in two short short shorts and my ex-best friend, Amanda Arthur, showing off her newly shaved legs. (laughs) This scene became the motif of my summer. Wherever we went for the next eight weeks, a post was prepared for me and I was left to watch purses and cameras. I felt deeply and wholly sorry for myself and fell into delicious self-pity. I delighted in making an elaborate nest in front of our picture window from which I would roost and woefully stare at the summer passing. Occasionally, my father brought me to his office as he held depositions, and I would dramatically dictate my sorrow into his dictaphone. 
And then, with two weeks left in the summer, the doctor downsized my kickstand cast. But no sooner had I started chasing my brother through the park, there was the snap. My ankle folded in two, and the inside of my right toe touched the inside of my calf. Another surgery, another cast, and now junior high. On my first day of seventh grade, <laughs> I sported three broken bones and two casts, and I refused to leave my mother's car. Her exhaustion with my projected fragility was palpable. I knew just by her posture that she was ending this melancholic debauchery. Abra, this has gone on quite long enough. This is not the hardest thing that will happen. We have held you up all summer, and now it's time to hold yourself up. There's no other choice. Since there was no other choice, I made my way to junior high with the most bravado that I could muster. But just as I reached for the front door, Todd Karras and his dreamboat frosted hair was there to hold it open for me. Back in the car with my mother, I'm pulling out all the best emo moves that I honed that summer. I'm trying to avoid why I called for rescue, the pile of shit in which I found myself. And this shit is the worst because I hit it so well that it never stank. Hiding the gambling, the drinking, and the holes in the walls was easy. The telling is way harder than the actual hiding. As we drive, I find I can't look at my mother, but the oppressive plainness of the Nebraska Plains starts to eat at my silent rebellion. Sitting in another car a few years earlier, I, hit, I held my contractions through the stop and go of rush hour, flushed with relief. I hated being pregnant. My existence had been invaded and conquered by another. En route to the hospital, I had decided that the baby would slide right out and save my marriage. <laughs> Birth would bring a warm, safe home full of laughter, and we would all fade into the happily ever after. The hours of pushing and sweating and screaming produced no relief, so we decided on a cesarean. Something slipped, my ureter was cut, which led to additional hours of cutting and reattaching and sewing, and then intestinal paralysis. My body was rejecting being empty again. The constant pulse of machines attached to my body, the static ripping of sterile medical supplies being pulled and prepared for procedure was weighing down my fight and my mother saw it. She locked eyes with me as the doctors huddled and reviewed and strategized. Her hazel eyes narrowed and I braced for what was coming. My tiny mother, who takes up every room with quiet authority, grabbed me by my shoulders, lifted me from my slumping will, and said to me in her even and purposeful tone, Abra, this is not the hardest thing you're going to do in your life, but it's going to be hard, and you're going to do it, and I'll be here with you, but you have to get on with it. With that, a handful of nervous residents restrained and positioned me so that an NG tube could be inserted through my nose, down my esophagus, and into my stomach. To avoid complications, no anesthesia was administered. I looked through the machines, the white coats, and the flowers and the welcome balloons 
and I stared at the reason why I had to get better. As we journey through Nebraska, I notice there is a physical weight to my shame, and it makes me mad, mad at her, mad at my mother. She's announced three divorces and four broken engagements to me and my brother without breaking a sweat or batting a lash. And I start to blame my present on her past. But I also start talking, and talking and talking and talking, and all the talking starts to even and clarify, and I realize that she's listening. I empty the last five years on the dashboard, and my mother speaks to her past, to her aches and her breaks. We joke about the deadhead stepdad who wore tie-dye every day. We cursed the stepdad who once gave me a painkiller and a glass of wine on Thanksgiving. We talked up the current stepdad, and she narrowly avoided trashing my father. The closer we got to the mountains, the closer we got to each other, and the closer I got to my decision to leave. We got home, and I had to face the faces of those I love the most. My brother was too gentle. My father was not. My dad and I sat on the back porch of my childhood in the dark. The night felt bruised. The blues and purples of the shadows moaned with the breeze and the early summer air throbbed with the premature humidity. I drank red wine barefoot. My dad drank cognac and warned me of splinters. I told the truth and he looked at me like it hurt to look at me. We smoked a joint. I got a splinter. He took it out and I finally slept. The next day, my dad woke up with the cold, so we went to my mom's. We planned on enchiladas the next night, but his cough wouldn't tolerate it, so we made grilled cheese. Three hours later, I was riding in an ambulance with him, and three hours after that, we held his hands as they disconnected the machines. His cold had slipped into sepsis, and his body had poisoned itself. In the Jewish tradition, my family sat shiva, a seven-day uh, mourning period as the rabbi, dripping in Chico's clothing, guided, yeah, guided us, sorry. It was a look, okay. Guided us through the morning. I could not pull myself through the rituals, but sitting, sitting I could do. I sat in his favorite chair and pet the worn leather, I sat on the porch and memorized our last conversations. I sat in the car that he taught me to drive in. I sat in a seat at the dinner table, but I did not eat. I sat on the bench in the park where I watched him push my son on the swing that he used to push me. I sat at his desk and wrote his obituary. I sat and I smoked. And then three months passed and it was August. They all called each other and talked about me in front of me my friends in Chicago, reaching to pull me back home and into their fold. But I barely registered the love that I had. All I could focus on was the love that I had lost. They decided that someone would come and collect us and bring us back into our present lives. I didn't fight it, but I didn't like it. I didn't want to move out of this moment, this time, this space. I just wanted to sit in my dead dad's house. So I sat and I smoked. I was on the porch and basking in my own stubbornness when my mother bummed a cigarette. She inhaled and then exhaled and then stared me down. She didn't say it, 
but she didn't have to because I knew this was a very hard thing, but I had to get on with it. So I got in the car. I drove back to Chicago, and I did more hard things. I left a marriage. I fell through two glass doors. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> I made some friends. I lost some friends. I broke a heart, and I had a heart broken. And then one night, in a karaoke dive bar, I kissed a scientist named Stephanie. <laughs> and nowadays, I'm dancing to Dolly Parton with her in our new kitchen, in our new home, in our new life, and I'm getting on with it. And these days, the getting's good. <laughs> This story was produced by Casey Truba, curated by LaTanya Lane, directed by Max Spitz, with music and sound design by Nick Park. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Skadden Arps Late Meager and Flome, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Cobank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.